Well, I want to thank you for coming this morning. I want to let you know uh, about where we're going from today. Uh, We're beginning a new series next Sunday, and it's described in your program, so I won't read that back to you. But I just want to let you know that the next seven weeks in the life of our church, I believe will be pivotal for the next seven and years, 17 years, 70 years. And uh, you say, well, preachers always talk like that just to get people to come. I want you to come not because you're going to be entertained or because I'm such a great preacher. I-, I want you to come because for the next seven weeks, we're going to be talking about the future of our church in very concrete terms. And uh, I want you to be here. Uh, we're going to be, uh, I'm going to bring you a sermon on Joshua 3 and 4. You can read ahead on that if you'd like. But um, I would like, as, as your pastor, simply to make the request that you clear any obstructions in your calendar, that you would be here for show for the next seven weeks. Is that okay? Looking forward to seeing you. <laughs> so we've come this morning to uh, the final message in this series how to meet the enemy. And I want to thank you for uh, the many comments that uh, you have made about this series, uh, some of them kind, some of them angry. <laughs> I'm glad that it's been helpful to so many of you. I'm actually glad that it has stirred up some of you. Some of you have indicated that, you, that you've struggled with some of the things that these messages have revealed to you. Um, some because it's new to you, some because it is unsettling in some way, others because this has been an occasion for correcting misperceptions about this whole matter of spiritual warfare that you have had in the past. I hope that you've come to the understanding, uh, at least this, that we have a real enemy uh, and uh, an adversary who wants to lead us into deception and division and discouragement and debauchery. His name is Lucifer. Satan, the devil, the evil one. The the good news is that Jesus Christ defeated Satan forever by his death and resurrection, defeating uh, Satan, breaking the power of sin and death so that anyone now who who will trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross uh, on their behalf may receive forgiveness and, and eternal life and never again live in slavery to the fear of death. Jesus Christ has already won the ultimate victory and the battles that we fight, the spiritual skirmishes in which we struggle, are not fought for victory, say it with me, from victory. Christ's victory through the cross and the empty tomb. And if you've personally trusted in Christ as your personal Savior, then he has taken taken up residence and he has established his throne in your heart. And what is now true is that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Uh, We saw last week that that God has provided each of us with spiritual armor, six pieces that that, uh, enable us to dress for success in spiritual battle. Uh, To withstand, Paul says, in the evil day, and then when you have fought your way through, when the smoke has cleared, to still be found standing in him by grace through faith. We got a a look last week at 
the first three pieces of that armor, the belt of truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. And one of the observations we made is that those first three are preceded by a verb that, that means to be, implying that uh, they are to be worn every day. And this morning, in the final message in this series, we want to look at the other three, which are preceded by a verb that means to do, uh, implying that we're to take them up and use them as we need them, and we need them frequently. So let's stand together and read our scripture for this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, so as we observed last week, the, the, this phrase, the whole armor in verse 11, is the Greek word panoplia. It, it was used to describe the, the full complement of armor. Uh, worn by a soldier in those times. At, at verse 16, we arrive at the second set of three pieces of armor. And the first is this. He says, in all circumstances, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Specifically, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The word for shield that Paul uses here in verse 16 is specific. The word is thurios. It, it referred not to the, the small shield that, that might have used, been used, for example, by a gladiator, but to the heavy oblong shield that was carried by Roman foot soldiers. And the word thurios in its basic meaning actually means gate or door. And it was applied to this shield because it was the size of a door. And uh, what we understand from that is that because of its size, it was large enough to provide full protection from attack. If, if you've studied Roman warfare at all, you've heard of the Roman phalanx. And, and these actually were shields that could be interlocking and, and create a shield wall. And, and actually, they could provide a cover when they were lifted up uh, from arrows that were raining down. In all of the Bible, this word appears only here in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 16. 
So let's observe, first of all, that, that Paul is saying that the shield of faith provides full protection for your whole person in spiritual battle. Secondly, observing the obvious, Paul says that the shield is faith. It's important that we not get obsessed with, oh, look, there's the shield of faith and there's the breastplate. He's talking about things that are real today, things that are enduring, things that apply to us in any age. The shield is faith, or faith is the shield. Third, he says, in all circumstances, take it up. You have to take it up. Say with me, you have to take it up. Action on our part is required. We have to take up the shield of faith. But what does it mean to do that? How do we take up the shield of faith? Well, allow me to venture a a simple answer. I believe that faith is acting as if what God says is actually true. Faith is acting as if what God says is actually true. You see, faith is never the blind leap that some of us would have us, some would have us believe that it is. It's not just a a kind of a casting care to the wind and diving headlong into, into oblivion or into confusion or just giving it a shot. Faith is only faith when it is tethered to truth. Faith is only faith when it is tethered to truth. In Hebrews 11.1, we find this uh, classic biblical definition of faith, where the writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let's very quickly take that apart a little bit. When the writer of Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, he is describing the capacity of the man or woman of faith to act confidently on the basis of the promises of God, promises that God himself has made and promises that God himself guarantees. That is, when God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. Secondly, the conviction of of things not seen speaks to the calm inward confidence of the believer that comes from a firm persuasion that what God says is true, even when I cannot see it yet. You ever have that experience? Can't see it yet, but God says it, and so I know it's true. Because biblical faith is only faith when it's tethered to truth, you and I have got to remove our feelings from our definition of faith. And because Satan is a deceiver and because your own heart will deceive you, as we saw last week, it is completely possible that you can feel faith-ish and still be faithless. I've had that experience. You you go to a place where someone else is preaching the Word of God, someone else is walking with God, you spend time with that person, you get faithish. 
And then you leave that place and that experience and those circumstances and those sets of relationships, and, and all of a sudden you find, oh, that was their faith, not mine. And now I'm faithless. I can feel faith-ish, but still be faithless. And when we allow faith to be defined by our feelings, we will never know where we really stand. We will never know where, in which direction we are really going in the disorienting environment of the world system and spiritual warfare. Faith is acting on the truth, whether I feel the truth, like the truth, understand the truth, agree with the truth, or not. There's a story that's recorded in the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Allow me to read it for us. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, that is Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. It's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon who is who you, whom you know as Peter, answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Now, Simon, Peter, was, was an experienced, seasoned, veteran fisherman of the Sea of Galilee, as probably was his father and grandfather and great-grandfather and who knows how many generations before him. So that when he heard Jesus' command, he knew based on the, 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 the accumulative knowledge of generations, generations of fishing knowledge, fishing wisdom, understanding of the lake, the movement of the fish in the lake, that it was highly unlikely that anything was going to be caught that morning. So he said, because it's you, Jesus, at your word, I will let down the nets. And he caught so many fish that, that the nets were ripping as they hauled in the catch. See, when Jesus gives the command, it's time to act. Whether we understand it, whether we agree with it, whether it makes sense to us, because we know that it's true. I have to move on, but here's a definition from one of my favorite Bible teachers, Tony Evans. Faith is acting as if it is so, when it is not yet so, so that it may be so, simply because God said so. Faith is acting as if it is so, when it is not yet so, so that it may be so, simply because God said so. And when we do that, Paul says, we're able to extinguish the flaming darts, the flaming arrows of the evil one. See, flaming arrows uh, have the capacity to kill an adversary, right? But that's not their primary purpose. Flaming arrows are used to light things on fire. 
They're meant to destroy, but in the thick of battle, their primary effect is to distract the enemy, to, to divide the enemy's uh, forces, and to create disarray. You cannot simultaneously fight an enemy and fight fire. Now, last week, when things were going crazy around me, my mother-in-law said, flaming arrows, flaming arrows. See, our spiritual enemy fires flaming arrows into our camp and into our lives in order to divide us, to distract us, to to dilute and diminish our effectiveness in battle. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we keep our eyes on our commander-in-chief, when we rally to him, when we set our faith on what he says, when we act confidently on his word, we are able to extinguish those flaming arrows. Next, Paul says, take the helmet of salvation. Well, what does a helmet do? It it protects your head. And I can never say the word head anymore without hearing my friend John Jenkins, who's a pastor in Maryland, say, your head, your head, your big old head. (laughs) That's That's what a helmet does. You never want to leave home without your head. And in the thick of battle, you want to keep your head clear and and even more keep your head on. So you have to put on, you have to put on the helmet of salvation. Repeat after me, I have to put it on. See, a helmet protects your head, your head protects your brain, your brain is the center of your thought processes. The helmet of salvation is given to protect your mind if you want to grow to maturity in Christ. If you want to be successful in spiritual battle, you must come to the conviction that your mind matters a whole awful lot. How you think, what you think, what you believe, and and how you therefore live will make all the difference in your growth in Christ and your capacity to resist the schemes of the enemy who is a liar, a deceiver, a seducer. So Paul wrote to the church in Rome and said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is written in a continuous verb tense. Don't go on, he says. Don't, Don't continue. Don't keep doing this. Don't keep allowing the world system ruled by Satan, to go on squeezing you into its mold. Don't go on conforming to the patterns, the fabric, the system, the values, the belief system of this world that is controlled and informed by the evil one. See, some of you are struggling in your spiritual lives, and I know this because you shared it with me, because you're still trying to pick and choose between what the world is telling you on the one hand, that which you want to believe, and what God has declared in his word. You're in a quandary because inwardly you reject God's revealed truth. Some of you took issue with a list of just a few of the devil's lies that I shared last week because of this, that you actually prefer 
the world's point of view over God's point of view. For whatever reason, that is your preference. It's a matter of preference. And, and in fact, you are insisting on the world's point of view. And in order to do that, make no mistake, here's what you have to do. You have to make God out to be the liar. Amen? When I'm choosing what the world says is true and saying I'm going to live according to that over against what God declares to be true, I am saying that God is a liar. And when you make God out to be a liar, you are doing what Satan has been doing since the dawn of time. Listen to how the Apostle Paul characterizes his ministry of the Word and the inner conflict that you are experiencing, if this describes you. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Jesus was even more simple and direct when he said, Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God, but you don't listen because you don't belong to God. See, I'm not talking here about things that are just intellectually hard to understand. I'm talking about those things that are spiritually informed. When you inwardly reject the simple, clear teaching of God's word, know this, that you are rejecting not the human teacher, but God himself. And if this describes you, I want to urge you to seriously consider two possibilities about you. The first is that you are in Christ, you're a Christian, and your reaction simply reveals a a lingering stronghold of resistance in your life that needs to be subdued, and as we saw Paul say in 2 Corinthians, demolished by the truth. A stronghold is a fortified position in our hearts to God's rule, to God's truth to God's way of doing things. The second possibility is this, that that you actually are not in Christ. In fact, you, you may never have actually experienced spiritual rebirth. So that when you hear God's word, it's foolishness to you. Jesus said, truly, truly, and, and again, that That phrase, truly, truly, that Jesus used a lot means you can go to the bank on this. You can trust that this is true. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You may say, well, I've been a Christian all my life. I was raised in a Christian home. I've attended church my whole life. I'm a Christian. Well, the Bible says you may not be because the Bible says that, that, that faith in Christ needs to be personally appropriated. In other words, you need to receive Christ as your Savior. You need to make a conscious decision, drive a stake in the ground, 
Ask Jesus to come into your heart and transform you from the inside out. That's what the spiritual rebirth is all about. The Bible uses lots of different expressions to describe that. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. There's a transformation, literally a metamorphosis that takes place in the, a spiritual metamorphosis that takes place in the life of the person who is reborn by the Spirit. And I pray, if that describes you today, that that you've not yet trusted in Christ, that, that today might be the day that God would grant to you the gift of faith that leads to life. Next, Paul says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You may have noticed by now that the sword is is the only actual weapon that Paul mentions in his description of the armor of God. And and if you have an inquiring mind, you're going to say, why is that? And, And it's because when you have put on all the other pieces, the sword of the Spirit is the only weapon you need. And there are three things you need to know and understand right up front. First, it's not your sword. It's the Spirit's sword on loan to you. It's it's the only tool, it's the only weapon that the Spirit of God uses. Secondly, the Spirit's sword is God's Word. And third, you have to take it up. Say after me, I have to take it up. You have to learn to wield it. You need some sword training. And that's why Paul said to Timothy, make every effort to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, correctly handling the word of truth. Now, there are three different words in the Greek language uh, in which the New Testament was written that are translated into English as word. And the first is graphe, the Word of God written, that is the Bible, the, the written scriptures, graphe. The second is logos, logos, however you want to pronounce that, the Word of God expressed. Jesus, John tells us in John 1, is the logos of God who revealed God to us. Logos is the, the living and active expression of the Word written. The third is rhema, the Word of God spoken. When Paul says that the the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, he says the sword of the Spirit is the rhema of God, the, the spoken, personalized Word of God. It was at the rhema of God, for example, just to illustrate this, that the heavens and the earth were spoken into being. You remember in Genesis 1, at the the very dawn of creation, God said, let there be light. And the effect of that statement was this, there was light. God said it, and it was so. The word spoken possessed the power to accomplish the word commanded. When we read in Colossians 1, 
that Jesus, God's Son, created everything in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, and that in him all things hold together. And when we read in Hebrews 1 that not only did Jesus Christ create the world, but that since that time the entire universe is held together by his powerful word, his rhema, we are to understand that the rhema of God is infinitely powerful. When God speaks, that which he speaks must come into being. It must be so. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if if Christ lives in you, there was a time when God first spoke into your life and you personally understood your need for a Savior. Again, Paul said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the rhema of God. God speaking something into your heart. That is, faith resulted when you heard the rhema, the personal word of God, spoken into your life, downloading to you the gift of faith and calling you into relationship with himself. When you're reading the Bible and you're reading along and you're kind of, and all of a sudden a scripture just kind of comes off the page and smacks you in the face, you've had that experience? That's God personalizing the word to you. It's a rhema experience. Now watch this. Rhema words are based on logos words that come from graphe words that have their origin in rhema words. Need me to repeat that? Rhema words are based on logos words that come from graphe words that have their origin in Rhema words. I'll let you sort that out mentally. Paul wrote to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It all came from the mouth of God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he, he spoke the Word of God three times and Satan withdrew from him. Three strikes and Satan was out. In his first response, Jesus laid it down. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every rhema that proceeds from the mouth of God. The the rhema of God is living and life-giving and active. So if the living word, Jesus Christ, had to use the written word to defeat the enemy of the word, how can we expect to do any less or to do otherwise and stand firm in the evil day? Taking up the rhema of God means that you will be in the word of God. You'll be listening for the voice of God speaking into every area of your life. And when you do and when you speak, when he speaks and when you discern his speaking, if you will listen and act on what he says, the result will be that you will have the incredible privilege of living your life with the confidence that you are in the center of God's will for your life. See, there's a great confidence that comes when, when you've listened to the rhema of God and you know that he has spoken to you personally about things like your ministry, the way you serve, your, your sexuality, your dating, your marriage, your career, your church, your friendships, 
the stewardship of your finances, and so much more. Finally, Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit. Let me read these last few verses for us. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keeping alert, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. See, prayer is the air war in spiritual battle. Success on the ground is dependent on connection to air cover. The weapons of our warfare, Paul says, have divine power. They operate in spiritual realms to affect people and circumstances and events on earth. Paul says that we should pray at all times. Jesus said we should always pray and never lose heart. For most of us, that probably doesn't mean entering a monastery and spending the rest of our lives on our knees. It's probably not going to fit for most of us. Instead, praying at all times means an ongoing conversation, a, a running dialogue with God that can take place anytime, anywhere in our lives. I've heard people say, well, the government kicked prayer out of the schools. How could he do that? How could they do that? They, they can't do that. We can pray at all times. Students, you can pray anytime at your desk, in the hallways, in your locker, in the gymnasium. Adults, you can pray in your home and in your bed and at your work and wherever you go. You can pray at all times. Listening for the rhema of God. Responding with requests. Prayer isn't just yammering at God. We're talking about a dialogue, allowing God to speak, sometimes just shutting up and letting him speak into our lives. And next we're to pray in the Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? It's not as mysterious as it may sound to you. Throughout his letters, Paul refers to the conflict between the Spirit and the flesh, the, the flesh being that principle in our lives where we are selfish and self-serving and self-absorbing and self-indulging. And Paul says that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. He says this, the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, the Spirit sets its desires against the, against the flesh, so that, he says, we can't do what we want And here's what I think Paul is saying, maybe among other things, when he says pray in the Spirit, that that we ought to pray for things that are on the heart and mind of the Spirit of God as opposed to that which usually fills our prayers, which are things that have to do with with, uh, satisfy the flesh. So we need to take stock of the content of our prayers. But there's more. Likewise, Paul writes in Romans 8, 26 to 27, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings 
too deep for words. And I just love that. I love that fact because I know that that even though I'm kind of a, a wordy guy, there are times in my prayer life where I where I just come before God and I, I can't articulate what's on my heart. I just there's just no words. Maybe I'm a, a place of deep pain or deep concern or deep anxiety, and there's just no words. Deep hunger, no words. And I love the fact that the, the Spirit can do a scan of my heart. And he can read what's in my heart, and he can translate that to God in ways that I could never begin to touch. He prays on our behalf, translating, communicating the inarticulate groanings of our hearts to God the Father. Who do we pray for? Paul says, pray for all the saints. Do you know that, that you are in Christ today because somewhere someone prayed for you by name? You're, you're walking in Christ today and standing firm in him because somewhere someone is praying for you. So let's pray for each other. Pray for all the saints. The word saints doesn't mean statues in a Catholic church. It means the holy ones. Hagioi is the Greek word. Holy ones, saints, Christians, people who are in Christ. Pray for each other. If you want to get an up-close personal experience of that and help with that, get into a life group because there's a lot of prayer that goes on in life groups for each other. Well, who do we pray for? Paul says, pray for me, that I might preach the word of God as I ought. I might speak the words of God as I ought. So pray for those who are in ministry and missional leadership. Write down these names. Ready? Pastor Jim and Marcy Hayes. Pastor Evan and Cindy Appleby. Pastor Steve and Rosalind Sept, Elder Greg and Fran Volkart, Elder Bill and Deb Marchant, Elder Freddie and Robin Williams. Add your life group leader, add your children's kids' life teacher, their youth leader, anyone else in, invested in advancing the gospel, leading the church, teaching the word of God. Pray for other pastors in this community who are faithful in preaching the gospel. Well, that's not all I got, but that's all I got time for. I trust that that this series has been helpful to you. And as we close, I want to remind you of the words of 17th century pastor William Gurnall that I shared with you last week. He wrote, if by negligence or choice you fail to put on God's armor and rush naked into battle, you sign your own death certificate. You must take it up. Say it with me again. I must take it up. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for its truth. Thank you that it speaks down into the deep recesses of our lives. Lord, I pray that it would be true of us that we would take up the whole armor of God, that we as a church and as individual believers in this church would take seriously the spiritual conflict that is raging all around us at all times. Lord, help us not to take it lightly. Help us not to make light of it. But help us to be serious in understanding that that we need to be alert. That we need to take up the full armor. Because we have an enemy, we have an adversary that would like to distract us, deceive us, redirect us and he does it so subtly Lord help us to be those who lock our shields together that in times of weakness we can borrow faith from others who are willing to speak the truth of God into our lives when we need it most and Lord at the end of the day when the battle is done, when the smoke clears, we will be found standing firm in grace and by faith. We pray it in the name of our Commander-in-Chief, Jesus. Amen.